The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. It's pretty often that I wake up and think about how companies around us are making pledges to be carbon-free by some date in the future, like 2030 or similar. How does that actually happen? What happens? How does it work? And can our company make a similar kind of pledge or commitment? To answer that question, Scott Melby. Scott, welcome to the show. Hi, Joel. It's a pleasure to be with your listeners today. There, there are a lot of guys. I worry about this. There are guys around me that worry about this. And anybody who's got a manufacturing kind of concern or works in those industries, they all have to be thinking that, you know, that they're reading the paper and all these things are happening. Uh, so first thing I want to ask you as, as, a, uh, as somebody who's been in the nuclear business, uh, peddling uranium and doing whatever the things you'll tell us more about uh, for a long time, uh, you know, when somebody says carbon free, you know, I mean, what are they what are they moving to? I mean, there's got to be some other energy source that they're going to power their company with uh, that. Maybe it's not going to be oil anymore. But what's what happens? Just just give us the baseline on that first. Sure. Well, Joel, I mean, obviously you're referring to, to what's really been a mega trend in, in energy. Uh, certainly in, in other countries, this move to carbon free or lower carbon energy economy. Uh, has been a, a major uh, mega shift in, in energy policy, but we're now, you know, seeing it firsthand here in the United States with the Biden administration and moving away from fossil fuels and more towards uh, carbon-free energy. And uh, you know, that's a challenge for a country like ours, where we're blessed with everything like oil, gas, coal, nuclear, wind, solar. Um, and you know, again, I think if it was my country to to manage, I would I would use the all of the above approach in energy policy. However, that's not where the world is 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 heading. You've seen the EU and, and the US and other countries all moving toward this carbon free. And you're referring to a, a big trend in this ESG investing, environment and social governance investing, which is really uh, focusing on uh, the externalities of companies that people invest in. And so it means companies like Amazon, Google, manufacturers, oil companies, uh, all moving to make pledges to be either carbon free or reduce their carbon emissions by say 30% within the next 10 years. Uh, I'm based here in Denver, Newmont Mining Corporation is the largest gold mining company in the world. 
They intend to be carbon free by 2050, uh, 30% reduction by 2030. That's pretty, uh, those are pretty uh, big uh, aspirational goals, uh, especially in, in very energy intensive industries. And this challenge really comes down to the fact that, um, you know, we all think of carbon free as renewables and uh, wind and solar, um, you know, intermittent source of supply are indeed carbon free, uh, but there are limitations to their use. Uh, something that runs 25 to 30% of the time cannot be 100% of our energy. Uh, okay, so wait, stop for a second. Why is, is uh, wind and solar only available 25% of the time? I mean, I mean, the sun is up half the time. Yeah. And wind's blowing all the time. Well, sun, yeah, a solar plant at best in the sunniest parts of, of the U.S. could operate 50% of the time because nighttime it, it's not available. Um, so that's a good use for in a state like Arizona, uh, not so good for, say, Minnesota. Um, wind power is extremely intermittent. Uh, the best wind farms in the world, say, you know, in, in Iowa or, or maybe parts of, of Wyoming that are very windy, the capacity availability factor of those plants is still only 25, 30, 35% at max. So that means that the other 70% of the time, those windmills sit idle and we need something backing that up. To date, that backup has been coal, gas, and nuclear. But countries are moving away from gas and nuclear or making it harder for those industries. So we look at nuclear energy, which is surprising to, to many folks, we're the largest source of carbon-free energy in the United States. We provide 20% of the electricity, but over 50% of our carbon-free energy. And so a lot of focus uh, is being uh, paid towards uh, nuclear energy and, and its ability to uh, back up uh, renewables uh, here and abroad, but also grow to meet these uh, lower carbon energy needs going forward. Okay, so uh, in nuclear energy... Uh it's not renewable and maybe you could, you know, explain that. I mean, that, uh, you know, I guess wind and solar just keep coming. That makes them renewable, but uh, you know, I mean, there's been a lot of bad press attached to nuclear and uh, accidents uh, going and going back to uh, the eighties, you know, when we had that uh, Chernobyl deal. Uh, so there've been a lot of different situations that people are afraid of it. Uh, you know, I mean, is it really a reasonable thing for us to consider given that? Well, no, I mean, I think uh, public uh, attitudes towards nuclear ebb and flow over time. But I think uh, two of the areas that people point to is safety and the waste. Uh, in terms of safety, nuclear energy, um, in terms of the, the gigawatts of electricity, the massive amounts of electricity generated 24-7 on a baseload uh, manner is the safest form of energy we have today. Uh, Coal-fired power plants emit um, uh, air pollution, forget about global warming, but just air pollution that causes millions of uh, respiratory ailments and deaths in countries like India, China, where there's very little uh, regulation on the air quality there. Uh, nuclear, on the other hand, I mean, if you point to accidents like Three Mile Island and Fukushima, no one was killed by radiation or even made sick by radiation in those instances. Chernobyl was a little bit of a different story, a uh, reactor that we would never build in the West, but even there, the uh, estimates of, of the health impact and certainly the deaths is a much smaller number uh, than, than, than people realize. So uh, bottom line is there's pros and cons to every energy source, but we do uh, provide that 24-7 clean air energy, which doesn't pollute the air and cause 
uh, ailments or deaths as a result, uh, as a result of respiratory. So, all right, so, uh, so, so start kind of at the beginning. All right, let's assume that uh, nuclear energy is a is a good one. Let's we'll, we'll assume that. Um, do we need to build a different kind of plant, or do the plants already exist and we convert existing plants uh, from carbon to something new, or are we talking about a whole bunch of new infrastructure, or can we uh, adapt the old infrastructure? What what happens? Yeah, so um, you know, around the world today, I mean, we're operating 450 reactors around the world, uh, generating 24/7 electricity. We've built 54 reactors in the last eight years and added them to the grid. These are large 15, 1600 megawatt reactors, and we have 54 more under construction today. And these tend to be the big baseload power plants that would be equivalent to large coal-fired plants, large hydroelectric dams, or or big uh, gas-fired plants. They're very large power plants. And that's great if you're a country like India, China, and you need large amounts of baseload 24-7 power, you're building the big plants. But we're now beginning to see a next generation of advanced and small modular reactors um, advancing here in the United States, Canada, Europe, uh, the UK, uh, Russia, China. And these are the 50, 100 megawatt uh, reactors, which are much more scalable and built in factories, shipped on site. They have a lower carbon. Uh, capital uh, uh, lift at the beginning and a much faster payback period. What are some examples of this? Um, We just recently had um, the uh, TerraPower announcement in uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming, of the sale of a reactor to Rocky Mountain Power, which is a Pacific Core company owned by uh, Warren Buffett. Uh, TerraPower is owned by Bill Gates. There we're seeing a 345-megawatt reactor Um, being sited in Wyoming on the site of a coal-fired power plant that's being retired due to the pressure on on uh, coal-fired electricity generation. So we actually have a situation where four communities within Wyoming are actively competing to get the reactor. They're not saying not in my backyard. They're saying, please, site in our community because we're losing uh, jobs with the energy transition away from coal. So we have big reactors that are continuing to be built around the world, but we're also seeing this next wave of small and advanced reactors. So it's a very exciting development. I mean, uh, you know, so you were talking about these 1500 uh, megawatts, which are these king size ones that power mm-hmm. cities or, or, or big areas. Mm-hmm. And then you're talking about something that's 50 that, that would 3% of the size that powers, I don't know, like a, like a ship, for example, I'm saying yeah. smaller. Exactly. Do you ever, do you ever perceive a day will come when it'll be the size of a suitcase and you put it in your garage and it powers your house? I well, mean, is we, that, is that something that's on the horizon or like a power in neighborhood? Yeah, no, it's, it's actually, uh, it's actually under development and, and really looking towards deployment. And the example is with the uh, U S department of defense. Um, we've learned in recent, uh, military, uh, 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 wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, that the highest number of casualties to our troops are in the logistical convoys to the battlefield. They're not, it's not, there's more deaths hauling food and diesel oil to the advanced uh, forward bases than uh, in battle itself. And so reducing uh, those sort of shipments, and, and if you're getting your power from diesel oil, um, that could be numerous convoys every every day and week to those bases. So the Department of Defense has um, uh, started a program called pa- Project Pele, which is a five megawatt reactor, which is housed in the size of a shipping container 
it's shipped on site, it's fueled to last for the entire time, it's, it's in use and uh, reduces that uh, logistical challenges. But that same kind of small reactor, micro reactor, if you will, can uh, power remote uh, uh, cities, communities, island nations, mining operations. And so we're beginning to see those applications. We're beginning to see nuclear uh, being paired with hydrogen production for transportation or water desalination to provide fresh water in places uh, in desert uh, uh, locales where uh, fresh water is, is at a premium. So we're beginning to see all these uh, additional applications for nuclear just besides the obvious one, which is electricity generation. So the so something super small for you know for a home or a neighborhood maybe isn't on the horizon, but saying the next size up is is already being contemplated. Mm-hmm. I wonder, you know, with this uh, oil uh, pipeline that was disturbed by the cyber terrorists uh, recently. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that uh, that I wonder is, you know, are certain things that we do in our country are highly centralized. And that oil pipeline is an example of something being very centralized and they, they devastate the pipeline and then, you know, millions and millions of people are damaged. I mean, I wonder if it's in our energy policy interest to decentralize some of these things and have a whole bunch of these little things around powering neighborhoods or little mini cities uh, instead. You know, and what do you think? Have you thought about that? Is that something that's being discussed? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the vulnerability of, of networks, um, you know, is, is a concern in every business. I mean, even feedlots have been, been attempted uh, in terms of cyber uh, attacks. Um, the electric grid in the United States is also, uh, there's been uh, numerous attempts on the grid, which is incredibly intertwined across the entire country and is of concern. Um, but, you know, the nuclear power plants, um, you know, even though there's been attempted uh, intrusions into their uh, their systems. As far as we know to date, there haven't been any successful. But uh, but yeah, decentralized power. Um, you know these small modular reactors. Uh, whether it's smaller communities. I mean, Wyoming isn't a big grid. You couldn't put a big power plant in there anyway. It would be too big for the size of the the daily, monthly, and annual needs. So um, you know, I can think of Hawaii. Hawaii is still getting electricity from diesel, burning diesel oil in 2021 which environmentally just doesn't make sense and cost-wise is, is really prohibitive. Uh, Puerto Rico, um, you know, the, the applications for this are enormous. And that's why we're really beginning to see, um, you know, these plants uh, really take off. And, and it's beginning to translate to an uranium market where our business uh, in, in the front end of the fuel cycle that supplies the fuel for nuclear power plants, uh, we're seeing demand come back to the pre-Fukushima levels and surpass the levels that we were at uh, prior to Fukushima. And because we've had a period of very low uranium prices, we've had uranium production globally trailing um, by uh, you know, 175 million pound annual market and need for uranium globally. We've been producing at 40 to 60 million pounds below that from mines around the world just because of the prevailing power, uh, uranium price. But we've now begun to see close to a doubling of the uranium price since 2016. And uh, the fundamentals of supply and demand looking very positive going forward. So, our, our, so really what we're talking about, this is kind of a macro application, right? For, for cities, for countries, for states. I mean, it's, it's big. It's not really at the local level. So right. uh, it, it's kind of a, a supplement in a certain way that you still need other things locally for cars and other things. We still need electricity and 
in other ways with batteries or whatever. Uh, I mean, is is there uh, does this ever get to a small level, or is, is is this energy source always kind of at a big level? Well, I think if you um, if we take transportation for example, I think um, you know you're better off having an electric vehicle which is powered by a regional nuclear power plant that's carbon free. I mean, if you're filling your electric vehicle from coal-fired generation, you're not really achieving anything in terms of uh, carbon reduction. But, um, you know, the need for electricity is, is growing going forward, not less. Everyone talks about, well, we need to conserve energy. Well, it's hard to conserve energy when everything in our society is computerized and electrified and now including transportation, not just personal vehicles, but uh, also trucking and other industrial applications. So, um, you know, there's no reason why uh, regional, regionally based uh, nuclear power plants, whether they're large baseload, you know, 1,500 megawatt units or these 1,500 megawatt plants uh, can't be filling the batteries of our cars and even, um, you know, home, uh, home battery applications. Uh, nuclear power plants run 24-7 at nighttime when it's still, uh, they can be charging those batteries whether they're in our garage or, or in our homes or factories. You know, one of the great ironies is that people buy these electric cars and then oil makes the electricity that they have to put into the battery of their car. So, you know, I mean, there, there ends up not being any net carbon savings, right? you know, when you look at the whole value chain. So the whole chain doesn't, doesn't work. But what you're saying really eliminates carbon completely from the cycle. So a person then uh, who buys a an electric vehicle for the purpose of, of helping the environment, et cetera, really does make a difference if, if the electricity is coming from a clean place to start with, which right yeah. now it's mostly not. And I've, I've seen that at, uh, in some Tesla showrooms, they'll have a big uh, computer screen, touch, touch screen on the wall, which you can point to your state and, and see where your electricity is coming from in Colorado where I'm based, um, we get, you know, 50 to 60% of our electricity from coal. That's just traditionally given our proximity to Wyoming and the Powder River Basin. If you're out in North or South uh, Carolina or Illinois, you have a very significant contribution from nuclear power plants or Florida. And so, uh, you know, I think Tesla's being honest there and, and saying, okay, if you live in these places, this is where your electricity comes from. And if it is a combination of wind, solar, and nuclear, and maybe some hydroelectric, you truly are carbon-free, and you can make that claim. Uh, if, if you don't, uh, it's pretty hard to, to say that you're uh, carbon uh, neutral. Now, some companies, back to your original question, are calling it net zero carbon. So they may be doing other things like paying indulgences, if you will, to use the old term from the, the Inquisition days, paying indulgences for sin. So basically uh, investing in forest land or something else to offset your carbon footprint. That's important. That's positive, but it's not really moving away. Their factory still being uh, fueled by, by fossil fuels. So the, the true shift to carbon free uh, is a, is a big heavy lift, but at least nuclear fits that narrative. Let's, let's talk um, for a minute about the, uh, the fuel source for, for nuclear, which is uranium. Um, and, and that's that's a big part of your business. I, you know, where does uranium come from? What does it look like? Uh, you know, and, and just just give us a couple of basics about it because many people sure. don't know anything about this. So just yeah. tell us a couple of basics. So uranium is a is a naturally occurring element in the ground. It's an energy commodity. 
it's mined either by conventional methods of open pit underground mining or under more about 50% of the uranium mining today is called in situ recovery, which is a very non-intrusive way to, to literally drill into an ore body and uh, extract the dissolved uranium uh, by, by pumping, by almost like an, it looks like an oil and gas facility, but you're pumping it as a solution out of the ground. So you don't have the mill tailings or waste rock or, or, or uh, remediation challenges. So uh, the other thing is it's the most intense uh, uh, energy intensity of any energy commodity. You don't need to mine a lot of uranium to provide a lot of energy. You know, a pellet, uh, a uranium pellet that goes in a nuclear fuel rod, you know, could be uh, equivalent to, you know, two train loads of, of coal uh, heading from coal country to power plants. So that sort of uh, small footprint, we still have to mine uranium and, and, you know, we have to do that environmentally friendly and, and a social governance and responsibility, which is so important in mining today. But our, our mining activities are so small compared to other energy commodities that uh, we really evaluate quite, quite well on that. But um, countries that are producing uranium, uh, Canada and Kazakhstan are, are the largest countries, Australia, uh, countries in Africa, Niger, Namibia, South Africa. The United States uh, has close to a billion pounds of, of known and likely resources of uranium. We've not been with uranium prices low since uh, kind of Fukushima and the impact that it had on the market. Uranium production's really dropped down to almost nothing in the United States, but really has a lot of potential to ramp back up here, especially with this different technology that is lower capital cost and environmentally uh, uh, friendly way to, to mine uranium. So I think uh, you know those countries will, will produce the, the majority of the uranium uh, that, that fuels uh, nuclear power plants. Yeah, if the uranium doesn't have a lot of uh, a lot of value in terms of price, it's pretty hard to incentivize people to mine it, organize it, sell it, do all the things that need to happen. I mean, especially if a small rock is the size of it, the amount of two train loads. Well, that's the that's the refined pellet. So, uh, uranium out of the ground, the natural uranium out of the ground needs to be milled and, and refined and concentrated. So. Um, you know, the, it's still, there's still volumes that need to be processed to get to that uranium fuel pellet. Uh, but, um, you know, the price of uranium has ranged in the last 10 years from $70 all the way down to $17 a pound. We're now at $32. Um, and the incentive price for most, really the most competitive mines in the world are $40 to $50 per pound and maybe higher than $50, $60 for a lot of bigger, newer mines. So the fact that we have a very strong demand for uranium today and production well below consumption annually and the need to build new mines is a real investment driver for, for uranium and nuclear investing. And uh, I'm involved with two companies, Uranium Energy Corp., which is a mining company uh, based out of Corpus Christi, Texas. We have the in-situ uranium mines in Texas and Wyoming. Uh, and then we founded another company called Uranium Royalty Corp., which provides uh, mine development finance to mine developers around the world. And it gives a platform for investors to have a diversified exposure into this uranium story. They don't invest in one company or one mine. They're taking advantage of our diversified portfolio of 16 different mines in, uh, every, in most of the uranium jurisdictions around the world. So that's how we're, I fit into that um, in the front end of the uranium fuel cycle. 
is uh, is big oil moving in this direction? I mean, I you know, what, 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 what's up with them? Yeah, they were in the last uh, in previous bull cycles in uranium. We've seen companies like Mobil, Conoco, uh, Exxon all get into nuclear in a very big way. And we're beginning to hear more speculation around that today. If, if, if Exxon is just being you know, forced to move away from its traditional uh, fossil fuels and, you know, and diversify into cleaner energy technologies, well, there's only so much investment that can go into the wind and solar uh, businesses. And uh, you know, I wonder how long it will be until the oil companies uh, get back into uranium and nuclear energy. Uh, so it's a, it's a very good question. Well, uh, you know, listen, uh, Exxon just got a smack from its investors, you know, so uh, and now they got some new guys on their board of directors that are going to take them in a little different direction or certainly going to be advocating for that. They're going to be making a lot of noise and yeah. other companies have to be afraid that something similar could happen to them, that uh, that some of these uh, advocates and some of these, uh, you know, people that have a strong opinion, uh, you know, start taking interest in their companies and then, yeah. uh, you know, involve, get involved in shareholder matters and uh, it, was a, it was a very, very, very big lesson and wake up call for a lot of companies. What happened here recently? Yeah. Uh, I, I would imagine that they're going to have to get involved. I mean, that's really something that has to happen. Uh, if they do, do you think that's good or bad for the smaller uh, producers? Well, it's, it's difficult because I, you know, we wonder what this green energy economy looks like in the United States. If we're all forced to kind of go down this path. Well, Germany did that over 10 years ago when they um, decided to go very heavily on renewables, but move away from nuclear power, which was their, one of their largest sources of energy at the time. And what has it resulted in today is electricity prices 50% higher than neighboring France, which is 70% nuclear powered. Um, we've seen them increase their carbon emissions. Well, why? Because the renewables, as we said before, can only contribute 25, 30% at best and the rest is having to come from uh, not only coal, but lignite, very dirty coal from the eastern parts of, of Germany. So um, if we don't do this energy transition in a smart way, um, it will cost not only businesses, but consumers in the form of higher electricity prices and even reliability issues. So, um, you know, I don't think nuclear is the only answer to this, but it can be a big part of the solution if we can get a lot of our base load power from nuclear um, it can be cost competitive. It can be reliable and and carbon free at the same time. Well, our government used to do a much better job of uh, looking forward in time, and now it's so political that you know more or less both parties look uh, immediately at what can I you know do to get a couple of extra votes. Mm -hmm. uh, currently, the Biden administration is very very clear about who they want to give jobs to. It's very mm -hmm. clear all this infrastructure, and I have to imagine energy is a big part of this infrastructure bill. Uh, are the jobs created by uh, moving to nuclear, are, are they high-tech jobs? Are they blue-collar jobs? What kind of jobs are these that, uh, that are mostly created? Because the, the Biden administration is crystal yeah. clear that they want to fund blue-collar jobs. Mm -hmm. They're crystal clear, and, and you know, several people have been out loud and come out and said it. Yeah. Uh, so what kind of jobs are created if they were yeah, to very, very much all of the above, um, you know, nuclear energy is, is, is union, un, you know, nuclear power is union power. Uh, these are big construction projects in all the, you know, electrical workers, um, you know, concrete, uh, 
piping, uh, all the all the disciplines are engaged in in building a nuclear power plant. So you have the blue collar jobs in a very big way, and then you also have the skilled engineering and and operating jobs where uh, folks with engineering degrees or physics degrees are hired to to run the plants once they're uh, built and and operating. So um, you know we can replace some of the lost jobs from fossil fuels and. In our states where my company, uh, Uranium Energy, operates, we need to hire people that have very similar skills to what they would have learned in the fossil fuels, whether it's coal, oil, or gas. So if there is some job losses, and we don't want that to happen uh, to our friends and family that are in the fossil fuels industries, but if it is happening and our industry can grow, it actually does meet that um, uh, Biden administration mantra of, of shifting to, to clean clean energy jobs. So, uh, you know, it is a very real uh, transition in that that regard. And, and I hope we can play a big part in that. Well, you know what, if, uh, if you could migrate the people whose jobs would be lost into this new environment, uh, so that the net job cost is nothing or, or even yeah. positive, uh, then it seems like there's a lot of reason for people to get behind it. I mean, the reason people would not be behind it is if they were worried they were going to lose their job and they'd hold on to yeah. something old and forsake something new. But if something new can be good for everyone with no cost to it, like a job loss, mm-hmm. seems like something worth taking a hard look at. Yeah, this, I think you see, uh, and I had the benefit uh, five weeks ago of testifying before the United States Senate uh, Energy and Natural Resources Committee on nuclear energy leadership in the United States. And, uh, you know, there I sat in front of uh, the, the chairman of the committee, Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, and the ranking member, uh, Senator Barrasso out of Wyoming. And these two absolutely in agreement on the need for nuclear energy. And I think Joe Manchin realizes, I mean, he'd like to do what he can to preserve the coal industry in, in his state. But I think he also recognizes that, well, maybe we can, you know, cite some of these new nuclear power plants in, in his state, just like what's happened in Wyoming recently, where an old uh, decommissioning coal-fired plant is being replaced by a nuclear plant. So uh, I think, uh, again, Democrats and Republicans are seeing the, the benefit and the wisdom in that. Well, this is, this is an extraordinary uh, uh, topic. It's a cool discussion. Uh, you know, it, it is something that's uh, pretty new for me and probably most of our listeners. So uh, you know, Scott, I, I really appreciate you sharing, uh, opening our eyes, uh, you know, talking about something that it's not exactly a business topic the way we always do, but uh, you've really kind of provided the inside track on how something works that we're not all familiar with. And that's what we're always looking for here on the show is the inside track. So thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate you being here. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, I may be back in touch with a question or two from time to time. Sounds good. And if you have more interest or questions around our company, it's Uranium Energy Corp. Uh, and uh, the royalty company is Uranium Royalty Corp. Uh, uh, one uh, UEC trade on the New York Stock Exchange and URC traded uh, on the NASDAQ and uh, TSX up in Canada. So again, um, uh, look into those companies and, uh, and uh, learn about nuclear energy right. and how we fit in it. Well, if you, you. Give us, if you give us the info, we'll put it in the show notes. So thank okay. you very much, and we'll be in touch. Great. Thank you. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. Hi. 
How about a shout out and a huge thanks to our podcast show producer, David Wolf, and the team at Audavita Studios. Profit from the inside wouldn't be possible without these wonderful professionals. To learn more or to find out how you can launch and produce your own podcast show, reach out to www.audavita.com. That's A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.